Hebrews 8, and I'm making no grandiose claims for how far we will get. I'm hoping I can get to five verses. But I'll read the chapter for you so we'll put it all in context. Actually, I'm going to go back into chapter 7 and begin reading, because if you want to understand the flow of thought, this is one of those places in the Bible where the person who did the chapter break didn't quite understand it the way I do. This is not the best place for a major break, I don't think. I'm going to begin in chapter 7, verse 26. For such a high priest became us, holy, guileless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men high priests having infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was after the law, appoints a son perfected forevermore. Now in the things which we are saying, the chief point is this. We have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, Wherefore, it is necessary that this high priest also have somewhat to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, seeing there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve that which is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, even as Moses is warned of God when he is about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern that was showed you in the mount. But now hath he obtained in ministry the more excellent, by so much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted upon better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then would no place have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them forth out of the land of Egypt. For they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, said the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and on their heart also I will write them. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his fellow citizen and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and their sins will I remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first old. But that which is becoming old and waxes aged is nigh unto vanishing away. And that's far God's word. Chapter 8, at least what we call chapter 8, continues the theme that we've been looking at for some time in the book of Hebrews, and that's the unique high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our high priest, but he is a unique high priest, not in many ways, anyway, not like the priest of old, the Levitical order. The author of Hebrews has been for some time setting out contrasts between the old priesthood that was set up under Moses and the eternal order 
of Melchizedek, which is established by Christ. You have the Levitical priesthood on the one hand, the order of Melchizedek on the other, Christ brings in that second one. The Levitical priesthood, the author has said, is imperfect. It could not take away sin. It could not bring perfection. And it was temporary. Not only temporary in the sense that every one of those priests died, only had a temporary ministry, but the order of Levitical priesthoodness was temporary too, or else, as he says in chapter 7, there wouldn't have been any need to mention another order of priesthood in Psalm 110, the order of Melchizedek. So the old Levitical order, being imperfect, being temporary, pointed ahead to an order that would be effective, one that would be abiding. And in the first two verses of Hebrews 8, the author comes to the main point of this section in the epistle. This is an interesting literary feature, by the way. If you look at uh, New Testament writing, you don't often have an author standing back and doing what I often have to do in teaching high school students or whatever, kind of, you know, outlining this is the main point. Write this one on the board. Get this in your notes, whatever it may be. But the author does that here. He says at the beginning of chapter 8, Now, in the things which we are saying, the chief point is this. The main point that I want you to get, everything that we've been looking at, comes down to this. The point is that we actually have such a high priest. Notice that? Now in the things which we are saying, the chief point is this, we have such a high priest. Many commentaries go on, it seems to me, to look at the description of the high priest in verse 1 as someone who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens and ministry of the sanctuary, etc., as the main point. I don't think that is the main point. I think that builds on the main point. But you notice there's a word in the previous clause that makes it pretty hard to continue on. The author says, not we have a high priest who sat down on the right hand, da 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 He says, we have such a high priest. What kind of high priest is that? Well, if you turn back to chapter 7, verse 26, you'll understand why I began our reading there tonight. Notice the opening words of verse 26, For such a high priest became us. For such a high priest was appropriate, was fitting to our situation. A high priest that was holy and guileless and undefiled, separated from sinners, and especially made higher than the heavens. So he has just said that in the paragraph preceding. We have such a high priest who is undefiled and has been made higher than the heavens. And thus the author will go on now in what we call chapter 8 to describe this high priest as seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. And the main point is we actually have that kind of a high priest. I really appreciate this, because what he's getting at is, this is not just a fairy tale. This is not just a wonderful idea in your head. Michael and I spent some time at Disneyland today. 
there are a lot of wonderful stories that are glorified out there at Disneyland. And, you know, everyone likes to see a happy ending, you know? Everyone likes to believe that the world is put together just right and so forth. The author says, but it's not just a dream world for us, not just a fairy tale. We have such a high priest. You could probably imagine it'd be better to have a high priest who is undefiled. It'd be better to have a high priest who goes before the very presence of God. That's only an idea. The author tells us, this is my main point. We have it. We have such a high priest. And then it goes on to describe this high priest further. We're going to spend some time on this expression, who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The perspective of the author of Hebrews, uh, more strongly than any other New Testament author, I believe, is that Christ is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's an important point for the author because he comes back to it over and over and over again in this epistle. Turn back to Hebrews 1, verse 3, the very opening paragraph of the letter. Who, being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification of sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He begins the epistle with that idea that Jesus in his completed work has now sat down. Later in the epistle, the author is going to talk about the fact that Jesus sat down after he did his high priestly work. I wonder if anyone right now can anticipate the significance of that. Why is it important that the high priest sat down? Pat? I think you're confusing this with the synagogue right. procedure. The teacher in the synagogue would say that's true. The significance of the high priest sitting down is that the high priest in the Old Testament never sat down. You know why they never sat down? Because the work was never done. There's a beautiful symbolism there. The work was never accomplished in the Old Testament. But Jesus, when he once for all made purification for sin, sat down. And then there's a double imagery here because he not only sat down showing the completion of the priestly work, he sat down at the throne of the right hand, which is a kingly position. And so you see the priest and the king brought together here. Well, that's Hebrews 1.3. Let's look at some others. Hebrews 1.13. But of which of the angels has he said at any time, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet? And then we've seen that expression already in our passage, Hebrews 8, verse 1. Turn now to Hebrews 10, verse 12. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. There's another expression. Since the sacrifice had been made forever, never had to be repeated, he could sit down in his work. But he sat down at the right hand of God, we're told in this passage, and then one more, Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, before the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, 
and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we see in five different places here scattered throughout the epistle, the perspective of the author is that Christ is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. This expression is taken from Psalm 110, verse 1. Turn back from the Old Testament. We've heard it many times in previous studies because the author is really doing an expanded uh, commentary on that verse. Jehovah saith unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jehovah will send forth the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people offer themselves willingly in the day of thy power and holy array out of the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. Jehovah hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jehovah says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It turns out that this is going to be the same one that Jehovah swears about. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What will take place, according to the psalm, after the one who comes in the order of Melchizedek? sits down at the right hand of God. How long will he sit there? And for what will he wait while he sits there? Well, as a matter of fact, not forever. It has a definite time period attached to it. It's not actually a time period. It's a definite period in which something has to be accomplished, and that will determine the time and notice that Jehovah says to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool rule in the midst of your enemies until all of them have been brought under your feet you turn to Hebrews 1.13 I don't think so. Um, it's conceivable that he is because he does have a human body. We do know that Christ has retained his human body in glorified form. Um, however, I, we're dealing here with imagery that's earthly imagery to help us understand what I think is the divine function of the Savior right now. And right now, the work of Christ is subduing his enemies. And whether he sits on a throne to do that or not, the point is, they are being conquered because the power that he exercises through the Spirit. I, I turned from Psalm 110, but you remember in Psalm 110, it says, your, your people offer themselves willingly in the day of your power. You see, Jesus has the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, his people offer themselves in service to him willingly. And uh, he has that same power to subdue the hearts of men and to strike through them when they rebel against him and so forth. All those enemies, in one way or another, either in blessing or in cursing, are going to be brought under him. But I don't think that requires a literal chair in heaven for him to be sitting upon. Hebrews 
but of which of the angels hath he said at any time, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. I'll turn to Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. We've read that just a few moments ago. But notice 13. Henceforth, expecting that his enemies be made the footstool of his feet. Jesus is expecting all of his enemies to be put under his feet. On the basis of Psalm 110, and then there are others that elaborate that promise, but Jesus is expecting them. I really um, like Hebrews 10, obviously, since God's Word of God, it should be liked anyway, but I mean, it's very helpful in talking about eschatology with people. Because, you know, the difference between dispensationalist and amillennialist and postmillennialist is really what they expect to take place in history before Christ returns. A dispensationalist expects that basically history is going to be a losing battle for God's people. We're a, a minority group. We must, of necessity, remain such until Jesus comes back and brings in some military might to subdue the nations. Even that won't subdue them in the end because the millennium will be a lost cause, this military millennium that the dispensationalist looking forward to. The amillennialist says, that, well, we would like to see history go in a godly direction, and we hope and pray for it, but we have no confidence that it will. Most amillennialists will say, in the end, history is going to go downhill like the premillennialist teaches us. The postmillennialist says, no, we must expect what Jesus expects. And what does he expect going to take place in history? He expects his enemies are going to be brought under his feet. Well, I don't want to sound like I'm unfair to dispensationalists or to all millennialists. They believe that Christ's enemies will be put under his feet too. But they believe that the enemies of Christ will be put under his feet after he returns. See, the dispensationalist says history is a losing battle, basically. Jesus comes back the Battle of Armageddon, establishes an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem, and then people are forced to submit to it at the uh, business end of a bazooka, basically. The Amillennialist says, Jesus will return and bring the day of judgment, and that will make all of his enemies submit to him. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28, where this promise of Psalm 110 is also found, and we'll see why the dispensational and all-millennial scenario will not fit the biblical teaching. Let me put it in full context by reading verse 22 and following. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits, then they that are Christ at his coming. Okay, so far, let's understand this. Adam has brought death upon all men. Christ has conquered death. Life is going to be given to those 
who belong to him. But this life from the dead, this resurrection life, will come in the appropriate order. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection order. And then when he comes, those who belong to him will be raised from the dead. We don't have any problem with the theology so far. Isn't that rather obvious? We understand the language of first fruits. First fruits, of course, was the sign from God that the whole harvest would come in. That was the offering that was made that we had faith that God will bring in the whole harvest. Jesus is the down payment of the resurrection order. The fact that he rose many years ago is the guarantee that we will rise. Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to Christ will rise. Now let's read verse 24. Then comes the end, when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be abolished is death. How will death be abolished? When we are raised from the dead, death will have been defeated because resurrection life will have overcome death. And what Paul tells us is that the last enemy that shall be abolished is death. When will the resurrection take place? When Jesus returns. Jesus returns, his people rise, death has been defeated. And death, defeated at his coming, is the last enemy. So now the question, when are all the other enemies defeated? There's only one option, right? Prior to his coming. Prior to the last enemy, all the other enemies must be subdued. If the other enemies are not subdued before death, then death is not the last enemy. And so what Paul says here, and this is one of the strongest arguments uh, you'll find in the New Testament for this, what Paul says is before Jesus returns, he's going to put all his enemies under his feet. And then he's going to come back and put death under his feet. And that'll be seen when we rise from the grave. And so you see why the premillennial or dispensational and the amillennial expectations about history are not true to the full teaching of God's word because they have the subduing of all Christ's enemies after he returns but Paul has it before he returns because when he returns there's only one enemy left and that's death okay back to Hebrews Jesus will do is hand the consummated kingdom over to his father. He will have completed the mediatorial reign 
of the Son of God. He will turn over the kingdom to his Father. However, before that end comes, the enemies must be defeated. He must reign till all of his enemies put under his feet, and the last enemy will be death. After death, after the resurrection. Yeah, the day of judgment is going to be glorious because Christ will then be glorified for having completed the full work that he was given to do when he came to earth. And he will give the kingdom over to his Father. And then what was once said at the cross, it is finished, will be said in glory, it is finished. Because the amillennialist believes that many enemies of Christ will not be defeated until the day of judgment. So what you have on an amillennial scenario is the resurrection of the saints and then in this period between the resurrection and the actual judgment, the enemy is being subdued, violently subdued, forced to submit to Christ because the day of judgment has come. Now, if they don't say that, then basically what they're saying is these enemies won't be subdued up till the day of judgment and they won't be subdued at the day of judgment either. I mean, if an amillennialist doesn't want the scenario I've just given you, and basically, as to say, there are some enemies Jesus will never subdue. Let us have to be wiped out and sent to hell. Where are they? They'll be. The enemies of Christ are subdued when they have their character changed and instead of fighting against the glory of God and the progress of Christ's kingdom, submit to his rule, glorify his name, confess him, sort of thing. And we're going to see today, according to Paul, when even the population of earth has been, for the most part, won over to Christ. And we will subdue disease and political uh, injustice and on and on and on. All the enemies that have come in through the fall of man to sin are going to be subdued. I think maybe what you're struggling with is the question, does this mean every single individual is going to be saved? But it, I don't think it does. It seems to me that you subdue a kingdom, a king subdues a kingdom, even when there are people in that kingdom who don't particularly like them. We do believe that Jesus is going to subdue Earth's population, but that doesn't call for uh, the wheat and the tares not being together until the end. Although we're sometimes told that we forget that. Well, what are the uh, specific enemies that are being referred to? Are those individuals, or are those uh, the general concept of certain uh, sin, or what are, what are the, uh, the enemies? I think it's every area of human life and existence that's been affected by the fall. And then there is, a, is there not a general falling away that was previous to the uh, Yes. Um, on the interpretation of Revelation 20 mm -hmm. that I prefer, 
there is after a glorious time of the enemies being subdued, mm-hmm. a last minute rebellion that God allows for purposes that may be rather speculative to get speculative to get into. It. Mm-hmm. I don't follow the kind of thing that's being put out of Hilo, uh, Texas these days on that issue. But uh, it seems to me that to demonstrate the nature of sin from which we have been saved and the character of Satan and the justice of God in sending people to hell, there will be a final apostasy. Mm-hmm. There will be a very would, short period. That wouldn't count as the uh, enemies getting out from under the No, they have been subdued, and uh-huh. Jesus is going to let them go. It's kind of like letting um, you know, your prisoner free so that you can shoot him in the open spaces rather than hanging him. <laughs> Um, I'm sure there's a more appropriate analogy. Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay. 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 okay, Hebrews 8. Now, on the things which we are saying, the chief point is this, we have such a high priest mm-hmm. who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. What is the majesty in the heavens? God the Father. Why the strange expression? The majesty in the heavens. It's found something very similar in Hebrews 1 3, which we've read, being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he made purification, his sin sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The majesty. This is one of the reasons why it's easy to believe that it was a Hebrew Christian who wrote the book. Very common in, in Jewish writing, in speech, to use a paraphrastic expression in the place of God. The Jews were not prone to just take the name God upon their lips. Now, you do find God mentioned Hebrews. It's not like it cannot be done. But it also was very common. It would be a natural thing in the writing style of a Jewish writer like this to have that sort of thing come out. The majesty on high, rather than to say God. But now, it is inspired paraphrases, after all. And so, what do we learn from this? the majesty in the heavens. Our heavenly majesty. It would do us a lot of good to sanctify us greatly if we would go through the Bible and look at the expressions, the names that are used for God. And just dwell on each one of them. You've heard me preach recently on the fact that God calls himself jealous. And what that means, that he is zealous for this love relationship between us. Here, we have another way of designating God, the majesty. Uh, many years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book, which, um, not altogether a bad book, entitled, The God is Too Small, in which the point he was making is that we, have, in our culture, our cultural theology, has made of God something puny, something wimpish, something hard to respect, something that really lacks the splendor and the power and the awe-inspiring character of the God of Scripture. Well, the author of Hebrews understood that uh, he called him the majesty. 
the one who is majestic and on high. Now, Jesus has been seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. The Son sits enthroned with the Father, but at the right hand. And some people might tend to think well, that's a subordinate position that shows less dignity. Hey, you remember that in that day and age, the right hand was the position of authority. To be at the right hand meant you were the one, you were like the prime minister of the kingdom. You're the one who made the decisions and carried them out. It's the position of privilege. And it's because Jesus has that position that every hostile force will be subdued under his feet. And so the main point, the author says, that I want you to catch is, we have this kind of a high priest who is holy, guileless, undefiled, made higher than the heavens, and seated now at the right hand of God himself. In contrast to all earthly priesthoods, such a ministry is prolonged for eternity. If he's seated at the right hand in the heavens, then it's an eternal priesthood. In contrast to all earthly priesthoods, such a ministry is universal and without limitation. This priesthood is not just for the Jews, it's for all of creation. In contrast to all earthly priesthoods, such a ministry is performed with kingly dignity. The Levitical priests were not also kings, but Jesus is. He not only is a priest, but he's seated at the right hand upon the throne of God. And in contrast to all earthly priesthood, such a ministry is the expression of divine power, not just human intercession. Maybe you'd like me to repeat those four things. See some of you taking notes, frowning at me and talking to God. Because he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, his ministry is one, prolonged for eternity. Two, universal, without limitation. Three, performed with kingly dignity. And four, the expression of divine power. Divine power. Point to verse two. We have such a high priest, the author says, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord kept, not man. The word for minister here is commonly used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Commonly used in the Septuagint for service in the tabernacle or in the temple. Christ has become a minister, the author says, in that sanctuary. The word here literally means holy. In the holy, meaning the holy place. And it's specifically that holy place which is the true tent, the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. It's important for you to see that the expression true tabernacle explains the sanctuary. In Greek, we call this an exegetical expression, one expression following another to explain the previous one. And so Jesus has become the minister of the sanctuary, which is to say, the true tent. I was surprised in doing my research on this passage to find the number of commentators throughout history who have not interpreted it that way, but have found a different meaning for true tent 
than the sanctuary. And one that may be of interest to you, we don't have time to look up all the passages I have intended, but a number of commentators, John Owen among them, felt that the true tent meant the human body of Christ. Because Jesus refers to his body as the tabernacle or the temple that he'll raise. In John 1.14, he pitched his tent, he tabernacled among us, and the human body in, in some of the Pauline epistles and in Peter is referred to as a tent. So there's some reason for that. But if you'll turn to chapter 9, verse 11, where a similar expression is found, you'll see why I think it's theologically inappropriate to read this true tent as a reference to the tent of Christ's body. Hebrews 9.11 says, But Christ, having come a high priest of the good things to come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Now, if the greater and more perfect tent is in fact the body of Christ, his human nature, then we have some difficulty because in this verse we are told it's not of this creation meaning it wasn't genuinely a material body of this creation as we know it, not a physical body as we understand it. And so from Hebrews 9.11 I would disqualify the interpretation of Hebrews 8.2 that reads the true tent as the body of Christ. I think the true tent just is the holy place that is referred to. And so what the author tells us is that Jesus became a minister of the genuine, imperishable, holy of holies, the one that's in the very presence of God in heaven. He's advancing his argument now. We haven't heard this yet. What he's saying is not only does Jesus offer sacrifice in the order of Melchizedek as one who is holy and undefiled, one who is eternal in his ministry. He doesn't have to offer sacrifice for his own sins first. He now adds, and Jesus ministers in a tabernacle that's not here on earth, but is in the very presence of God in heaven. Chapter 9, verse 24 gives the same sense. For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself now to appear before the face of God for us. We talked about this before, so I'll be quick. Remember that when the high priest on earth, the Levitical, Aaronic high priest, went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, the symbolism was that he went into the very presence of God. God seated between the cherubim upon the mercy seat. And there atonement was made for the sin of the people in the presence of God. But now our author says Jesus didn't enter into the Holy of Holies on earth. He entered not into the Holy of Holies before the presence of God. He entered into heaven itself. So not just the earthly expression of the presence of God, but the very presence of God in heaven, the very throne room of God in it, to make intercession for us. And we learn from this that the wilderness tabernacle was but a shadow of the heavenly reality. That that tabernacle 
And then later the temple that was set up on earth was only a shadow of a reality that is actually in heaven. In fact, the wilderness tabernacle was set up by man. So you know that the wilderness tabernacle could never really be the presence of God. God doesn't rely upon men to set up his dwelling place. The true tabernacle is set up by the Lord because it's the Lord's own place. And so Hebrews 8 tells us, We have a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Had we the time, I might take a, a minute to speak about Platonic philosophy and the use that Philo made of Platonic philosophy to talk about a heavenly tabernacle and an earthly tabernacle. It has bothered many people. They think, well, the author of Hebrews has just picked up from Philo this idea and has used it. Of course, the problem is that Philo was speaking metaphysically. The author here is speaking soteriologically. He's not giving us a basic premise for how reality is structured with prototypes in the heavens and then particulars here on earth. He's talking about a concrete place, the very throne room of God. And his point is that when God gave the pattern to be followed on Mount Sinai to Moses, that pattern was a pattern of his own throne room in heaven. So that when Jesus now enters into the very presence of God as our high priest, he is, to use theologians talk, <clears throat> ministering in the antitype of what the tabernacle was. The tabernacle was a prototype. It was a foreshadowing of a reality that would be yet coming, the ministry of Jesus in heaven. That is called the antitype, that which corresponds to the type. So you have the type in the Old Testament, the antitype in the New. But in this particular case, the reality not only comes after the prototype, it precedes the prototype. And so what you have is the very throne room of God in heaven being the model for the tabernacle on earth, which is the foreshadow of the work of Christ yet to come. So you have to get all three of these things in your diagram. Try to blackboard like this. Make it a little clearer for you. And this is, um, of course, what the author elaborates on in verse 5. Who served that which is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, even as Moses is warned of God when he's about to make the tabernacle. See, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern that was showed thee in the mount. Moses was showed a pattern to follow, and that was a shadow of the heavenly things. Now, which would you prefer? A priest that ministers in the shadow, or a priest that goes into the very substance and reality of the presence of God to offer sacrifice to him. You see the superiority then of Christ's priesthood. Verse 4 explains, now verse 3, before I get too far ahead of myself, verse 3 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. This is the same premise the author used in chapter 5, verse 1 for every high priest being taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices 
for sin. <laughs> continues that promise of 5.1 and what it says is that priests in the nature of the case must have something to offer. You don't have a priest who doesn't have a gift or a sacrifice. And that's 8.3 says it is necessary that he has something to offer. Wherefore, it is necessary that this high priest also has something to offer. The something here is singular in the original. The Levitical priest had many gifts and many sacrifices, but this one only has one. And what is it that Jesus will offer? Himself. In this case, the priest and the sacrifice are the same. And where will he offer this gift or sacrifice of himself? He'll offer it in the very presence of God. Not just in a shadow temple or tabernacle on earth. Take one. About the That's right. It was holy because of the presence of God. The seraphim saying, day and night, holy, 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 the Lord God. Um, so his presence makes it a holy place. And on earth, was at best a shadow of that holy place, which is the very presence of God in heaven. Because that sanctuary was there even before the fall of man into sin, so it is not necessarily redemptive. In 8.4, the author explains that if Christ's ministry was merely on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, since according to the law, the priest had to be from the tribe of Levi. Now, if you were on earth, you would not be a priest at all, seeing there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Here the author does an interesting maneuver on his opponents. His opponents would be tempted to say, well, this priest that you're talking about isn't as good as the Levitical ones because he doesn't minister according to the law. To which the author says, yes, praise God, he's much better than that. Because if he were on earth, all he could do was minister in the earthly tabernacle. But since he's a priest not according to the law, but according to the oath, he must minister in heaven, which is much better. You follow that? How he takes what would have been a point against the Christian message and shows the superiority of the Christian message on the basis of that same point. Notice also in chapter 8, verse 4, the present tense, there are those who offer. Now, if you were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, seeing there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. What's significant about that present tense? There are those who offer gifts according to the law. Exactly. The author says the Levitical priests are still working in the temple. And we know that that ended in maybe 70 when the temple was destroyed. And so you can positively date this book prior to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. 
The author doesn't say, now if he were on earth, he would not have been a priest at all, seeing there were those who offered gifts. He says it axiomatically in the present sense. That's going on now. Then in verse 5, to repeat what we've already said, those on earth serve that which is a copy and a shadow. If it's a copy, it's like a plan or a drawing for a building that's appropriate enough for instruction or guidance to people. But obviously the blueprint is not going to take the place of the three-dimensional reality. It's a copy then. But he adds it's also a shadow. And you know what's neat about that is that you can't have a shadow unless the substance exists. And so what he's getting at is that what Moses saw on Mount Sinai was a, a copy, to be sure, but a shadow as well. So that there is genuine continuity between the tabernacle that the Levites ministered in and that which Jesus now ministers in. Though his is a superior one, he ministers in the presence of God in heaven, and that was foreshadowed by the Levitical priest ministering in the tabernacle of old, but that tabernacle of old was itself a shadow of the very presence of God in heaven anyway. And so there's continuity throughout. And as I've already told you, this indicates that the reality came not only after the type, but also before the type. It was a copy and a shadow. And so let's conclude tonight's lesson. The author has shown us that Christ has a superior priesthood. He has hinted at something he's going to come back to, that Christ has a superior sacrifice to offer. And he now tells us Christ has a superior tabernacle in which to minister. And that leads him then in verse 6 right into the thought, but now hath he obtained a ministry the more excellent. You see, if he has a superior priesthood, a superior sacrifice, and a superior tabernacle, then he has obtained a ministry the more excellent by so much as he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted upon better promises. In our last lesson, we looked upon the better covenant and the better promises but now when we come back to Hebrews, we're going to look specifically at the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31 and how it is so superior to what the Jews experienced in their day. Any questions on tonight's lesson? Pat. Well, the Father and the Son are both God, right? That doesn't bother you. They're both kings. That doesn't bother you. <laughs> well, from a functional or what we call economical standpoint, let's remember that God the Father is king who delegates authority to the Son to rule on earth. He's the, the Son is the mediatorial king. Over them. Now, Jesus is divinely king, just as Father is, but in the economy of redemption, Jesus sits at the right hand as the mediator over heaven and earth. So they're both, um, 
They're equal in terms of the deity, but there's a functional subordination in terms of the economy of redemption. And so they're both kings. Yes. And they're both priests. No, I don't. I don't believe it would be appropriate to call the father a priest because that is an intercessory office. And uh, as such, Jesus the mediator can be a priest and a king, but the father would not be a priest. Because he doesn't mediate to anybody higher than himself. Yes? Uh, his authority is for eternity, that's the true. The priestly work is completed uh, of atonement, but the priestly work of intercession continues. He ever lives to make intercession for the saints, the scripture tells us. And so Jesus, on the basis of his completed atoning work, can now intercede to the Father for us without making further sacrifices to sin. But he continues to do that. Yes, I believe so. I believe we'll have no right to be in the presence of God apart from Christ as our priest, as our advocate. Jim. Then if you're going to leave the right hand of God, and if so, where does he go? Well, it may be that we're pressing a figure of speech beyond which the scripture wants us to, uh, to pick up on. He will, the mediatorial office of Christ will um, terminate when he gives the kingdom over to the Father. Now what his specific position will be at that point, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we can think beyond that. And I'm not sure what the scripture speaks to it. We do know that he is he's functioning now to accomplish something as mediator, and the day is going to come when that will be finished. Yeah? I know when we talked really about last time, the fact that Christ is, we know that Christ is the king who is glorified by bodily faith. And um, how do you support that? <laughs> Would that take all night? No, it wouldn't take all night. It's that I was asked that then, and so I incorporated it in a sermon that came up uh, thereafter so that uh, we have that settled, and now we have to go back and look up those verses. Doug, can you help me? Colossians 2.9. There you go. Colossians 2.9. The present tense of Colossians 2.9, is that right? Yeah, and what that says is, when Paul wrote, the book of Colossians, at least the case that he bodily had the fullness to the God there. What other kind, what other kind of body would you be I thinking of? Kind of like saying, well, why, why does the music have that note? <laughs> is it music? <laughs> well, you could use it as a figure of speech. You could say that you know that is the body of Christ, which is the church, and so forth. But even as a figure of speech, its primary meaning has to be something physical. Does that help? Yeah. 
Any other questions? Okay, next time when we come together, we'll talk about the New Covenant then in Hebrews 8. And especially note that last verse of the chapter. It says that uh, that which is becoming old and waxing aged is nigh into vanishing away. How is it that the author can say that the old covenant is nigh into vanishing away when Jesus has already established the new? Very significant for geopolitical events in that day. But I'll uh, keep on making your seat until you come back.